Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. Do you guys know who wrote the book of Luke? Luke, he sure did. You guys, you guys are smart. All right, I'm going to warn you that this morning uh, I got a little uh, cold bug this past week, so at some point this morning my voice will crack. And I just want to warn you that so when I'm giving you some profound statement and it cracks, you can stay focused in that moment, okay? So just so you're aware of what might happen. So we're looking at Luke chapter 15, and this is a... uh, a very profound story. In fact, I think it's one of the most profound stories in the whole Bible. And this story, this story basically shows us what the gospel is and what the gospel is not. And so we're going to unpack this story for the next like six weeks. And what I want to do is I want to show you just how deep Scripture really is. The fact that we can spend six weeks on one passage and, and look at different facets of that passage Today we're looking at the younger son in the story. In two weeks we'll look at the older son in the story. We'll look at the father uh, later on down the road. We'll look at different aspects of the story. But I want you to see just how deep Scripture really can be when you unpack everything that's in there. And this story is is very profound. Uh, In this story, Jesus, you might know the story as the story of the prodigal son. We've renamed it the two sons because it's really about two sons, not just the one son that went off and went astray. Now, as, you, as we said last week, the older son is what? What is he? He's the good son. He's the, the rule keeper. He follows all the rules. He's the son that gets up early and helps with chores on the farm. He's the son who is home by curfew every Friday evening. He's the son who gets excellent grades. He's the son who is just really dedicated, works hard. He is not lazy. Then we have the younger son. Now, the younger son is the exact opposite. He is the rule breaker. Now, as you might know, in families, this tends to play out in this way, right, where the older son or daughter tends to be really responsible. Not always this is the case, but most of the time, uh, the older son or daughter is like the more responsible of, of the family. And then the younger kid comes along, and they're like, whatever he or she does, I'm doing the exact opposite, right? That's how families tend to play out sometimes. So at times, the younger kid can often be the the more spoiled one or the one that likes to push the envelope and break the rules. So the younger son is the rule breaker. He does everything wrong. If he knows where the line is, he asks, okay, where's the line so I can cross it? The older son says, where's the line so I know to stay within the lines? They're completely opposites. So the younger son, who's the rule breaker, he goes to his father. He asks for his inheritance. In that day, that was like saying, I wish you were dead, Dad, to say, I want my inheritance now while you're still living. It was to wish your father dead. And so the father does the unthinkable. He actually gives it to his son. The son goes off into a far distant country. He wastes the money on gambling, on prostitutes, and who knows what. He returns home when he's at the lowest of the low. The father actually welcomes him back in, and he throws a big party to welcome his son home. The other son, though, the older son, gets angry about the father's reaction. And his thought is, how can you treat him so well when I have 
followed the rules. I have done everything I'm supposed to do, and I've never even gotten a small party. And you throw him the biggest party we've ever thrown, even though he took your inheritance and he squandered a third of your wealth. And so the older son is having a pity party. He's standing outside the party, and he is having his own little isolated pity party for himself. And the father says at the very end of the story, he says, son, all I have is yours as well. And he invites him into the party, and we don't know the ending of how it played out. So we're left hanging at the end of the story. And so in life, there are two kinds of people, the rule breakers and the rule keepers, right? You have friends, you know this to be true, you've got people that you know, yeah, that guy's kind of, he leans more in that direction, she leans more in that direction. Everyone's personality tends to be bent in one of these two directions, right? Now, it's not always the case, but for the most part, you can look at yourself and say, yeah, I'm probably more of a rule keeper, or I'm probably more of a rule breaker, right? Almost everyone falls into one of those two categories for the most part. And so today we're focusing on the younger son, the rule breaker, and some of you in the room right now, you know who you are, you are like the younger son, right? You are just like the younger son. You are the rule breaker. You, you love to push the envelope. If there's a line, you want to cross it. You're the person that likes to make people angry and mad and upset. Um, you, you just love pushing the envelope. That's you. That's just who you are. And so today we're looking at Luke chapter 15. Look at verse 11. 15, 11, it says, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. As I said, to ask for your father's inheritance before he was actually dead was the same thing as to say, I wish you were dead. It's like going to your dad or your mom and saying, going to your mom, to your dad and saying, you know, I really wish that you were dead now so I could have your inheritance right now, right? Can you imagine going to your parents and saying something like this? Some of you are like, I did that last week. What's wrong with that? So, but here's the deal. This guy, this younger son, he wanted his father's things. He wants his father's stuff. He wants his father's blessing, but he doesn't want the father. He doesn't want the father. He just wants his stuff. He just wants his money. And here's the, the reality. We do the exact same thing with God, do we not? We do the exact same thing with God. We want God's blessing, but we don't want to obey him. We want God's stuff. We want his things, but we don't actually want God himself. We don't want a relationship with God. We just want the blessing, the benefit of God. We do the exact same thing in our own way. As Christians, we, we believe in him. As Christians, we say we believe in God, but by our actions, we wish him dead. By our actions, we wish God dead. There was a book that came out recently called The Christian Atheist. I thought it was a really intriguing title. And the subtitle is Believing in God, but Living as if He Doesn't Exist. And in this book, the author unpacks the ways in which we as Christians live out our lives. We, we say we believe that God exists. We say we believe in him. We say we have a relationship with him. But by our actions, we act as if he doesn't exist. We wish him dead. 
just like the younger son in this story. And so the son, he goes and asks for his share in the estate, and the father does the unthinkable. The father actually, he gives it to him. He says, okay. Imagine if you went to your parents and asked them for your inheritance. You'd get the reaction of no. No again. Never. In fact, I'll change my will right now. You're not going to get anything when I die, right? But this father does the unthinkable, and he actually gives the son just what he wants. And here's the crazy thing about this. God does this to us sometimes as well. Where we insist on living rebelliously, God sometimes gives us the exact thing that we want. So with keeping that in mind, do your first four questions at your tables. All right, let's look at verse 13. Let's look at, let's look at verse 13 now. And what I'll, what, I'll do, what I'll do is whenever we go over to like 1230 or so, I'll just blame it on you guys. All right? All right, so look at verse 13. It says, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. So imagine the awkwardness of this. I know that this is a parable. It didn't really actually happen. Christ is telling a parable to make a point. But if this was a real story in, in real life, in verse 13 it says, not long after that. So he's asked for his dad's wealth, and then he just kind of hangs around for a while, right? And before he actually sets off on his journey. So can you imagine just the awkwardness of that? I mean, the dad and son are at the breakfast table, like in just complete silence. All you hear is like, they're crunching the cocoa puffs, and that's all you can hear. They're, they're quiet. They're silent. They can't, they can't really talk. They're not in, on speaking terms at this moment. The son has rejected the father, and so the son gets together all of his stuff. After a while, he sets off for a distant country, and it says he goes and he squanders his wealth. He, he goes to the nightclubs. He goes to uh, even find prostitutes. He even goes, he goes and gets drunk. He gambles his money away. He goes off to a place like Vegas, right, and just goes crazy. And I, I find it somewhat comforting to know that the same things that happened today happened back then, and the solution is the same today as it was back then. I mean, this is, you could put this story in 21st century context, and it'd make perfect sense, right? Because here's the, the issue. All of us think where we live right now we think it sucks, right? We think where we live right now, we think it's just a horrible place to live, right? Anytime, wherever you're from, you think that where you live is horrible. There's nothing to do. It's boring. I grew up close to Washington, D.C., and I will tell you, everyone that came through there just thought it was the worst place in the world. I thought it was the worst place in the world. My parents, they had 200 acres of land. My grandfather had a farm. We had tons of space to ride four-wheelers, and 
We can go shooting out in our backyard. Like we had, a, we had a great life, but even I thought, this is horrible. I hate this. I hate, li- I want to live in the city. I hate the country, right? Then I moved to Arlington, Texas, and everyone that I ran into was like, I hate Arlington. It's the worst city in the world. And I'm like, you've got Six Flags, you've got Hurricane Harbor, you've got the ballpark. Now they have Cowboy Stadium. It looks like an enter- entertainment mecca, right? But no one likes where they're from. Then I come to Temple, and people are like, I hate Temple, right? So wherever you're from, no matter where you're from, I've even gone to, I've, I've, been, I've been overseas. I've been to London, and the funny thing about London, listen up, we see certain cities in Europe as like, oh, I would love to live in like Paris or London or Athens or Rome. But you go to London, and people are like, so why did you come here? And you're like, because I came to see your city. They're like, why? Why did you come here? Our food's horrible. We have gray, dark skies all the time. It rains here all the time. Why did you come here? Right? And so they are, they are, they are floored that we like their city. Right? Because when it's your home, it just, it's horrible. It stinks. That's what this guy was going through. He, he thought, this is horrible. I hate my life here. I want to get out. I want to go somewhere else. I want to go crazy, okay? I want to be independent. So what, here's the things that people say when they're in this state. They, they say things like, I need, to, I need to find myself, right? I need, to, I need to follow my heart. I need to do what makes me happy, right? We have these catchphrases people say all the time that, that summarize this situation. But here's... Here's the crazy part about this story. This young guy gets exactly what he wants. But sometimes getting exactly what you want might be the worst thing for you. I spoke to a dad this past week who called me, and he's called me before about the same issue. But his daughter has just gone off the deep end into sin. And he is just asking me, what do I do? How do I, how do I address this? What? As a parent, what can I do to convince her that what she's about to do is just a horrible mistake? What do I do as a parent? And I'm sitting there myself going, I don't know. I don't know what you do in this situation. But she's about to make these decisions, already has made some decisions. And as a parent, this is a very difficult place to be. Imagine being this father, watching your son Make these decisions with your money. And the father lets him go, lets him do it. And some of you in the room right now, you are in this very spot. You are on the brink. You are restless. Right now, you're restless. In fact, you might be tempted to kind of go off in a bad direction while you're still at home, even now. But some of you have premeditated a plan that when you go off to college, that's going to be your time. When you leave this place, you are a goner. When you leave this place, I mean, forget your faith, forget the church. You want to have a good two full years of the party lifestyle, sex, whatever you want to get into, so you can say that you experienced life. Like, I know you're thinking that right now. You are thinking, when I leave this place, this is my plan. Right now, I'll follow the rules, but later on, I'll make my own rules. That's where you're at. Some of you guys are on the brink right now. You're restless. You think that where you live right now is a horrible place to be. 
you don't like coming to church, you don't like this Christian thing, and don't want to follow Jesus, you're, you're playing the game right now so you can then later on when you get to college, go crazy and party like it's 1999, right? Okay? That's what you want to do. And let me tell you this, let me tell you this, that getting what you want, listen up, getting what you want might be the worst thing for you. Look at verse 14. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to feed to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods and the pigs that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. No one feels sorry for a guy like this, do they? No one feels sorry for a guy who had everything and goes off and squanders his wealth. No one feels sorry for that guy or that girl. And so he goes from these big dreams to being in, in pig mud with pigs, eating with the pigs, or wanting to eat what they're eating. Can you imagine having that? Like you've got all this money, you blow all your money, and then you find yourself in a pigsty craving what the pigs are craving. This is a very dark place. But this is usually the way the story goes. Usually when someone goes off in this direction, they end up in some spot, some dark place they never thought they'd be, and they're like, how did I get here? How did I go from over here to where I am now? And at this moment, he comes to his senses. He comes to his senses. And you you see, here's the reality. Some of you in the room, you want an exciting testimony, right? You're like, I want to live life. I'm not going to be one of those boring Christians. I want an exciting testimony. I want to be able to say things like, I experienced life, and then I came back to Jesus, and I'm here to tell you that, yeah, it's a lot of fun, but um, now I'm back with Jesus having an amazing time, right? And you're just so happy to be a Christian, right? And so you want to you have an exciting testimony, and you want to have street credibility, Right? So you want to be able to tell your friends, like, yeah, I tried all that, man, and it's a lot of fun, but yeah, I guess Jesus is where, it, where it's at, I guess, you know? So here's the question. Why do we want this? Why do we have this desire to say, I've experienced life, and I have this exciting testimony, right? With that in mind, answer questions five, six, and seven. Go ahead and discuss. Okay, let's look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. Before we look at that verse, listen up, listen up. Before we look at that verse, um, I had lunch with a guy last year, a guy that used to go here, and he told me this. He said, he said I want to experience, I want to experience life. Like, I want to experience some of the things that we say are, are, are wrong because I feel like, you know, I can come back to Christ later on. And what I told him was this. I said, look, dude, I go, deciding to, like, premeditating a rebellious lifestyle, premeditating sin like that, is like choosing to enter into a burning building. It's like deciding, yeah, I want to, would a burning building be somewhat exciting to go into? Yes. In its own way, I guess. But here's the reality. You might not make it out alive. 
you might not make it out, right? And so choosing, I know we've all heard the testimony, the glamorized testimony of like, here I went off in this crazy lifestyle that I came back to Christ. We've all heard those testimonies before. But you're hearing the story of the one that made it out alive. You're not hearing the story of those that are still in the building. Those are those that are dead as a result of their life, spiritually dead. So you might not make it out if that's where you're at. Look at verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. So while in this pit, he comes to his senses. And this is what normally happens. When you realize how good you had it, you come to your senses. And what we learn from this passage, go to the next slide. In verse 18, we see that he says, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against earth. And what we see here is that sin is not just a violation of rules, but a violation of relationships. Write this down. Sin is not just a violation of rules, but it's a violation of relationships. This young man realizes that he has sinned against someone. He's not just broken a rule. He has sinned against God, but also sinned against his father. It is a violation of relationship, not just a violation of a rule. So he goes home, and in humility, he realizes he's not worthy. But the father receives him back and makes him a son again. The son goes home, wants to be just a servant, but the father, I'm not going to make you a servant, I'll make you my son again. I want you to catch this. In verse 19, he says, I am no longer willing to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. At the end of the story, you'll figure out that the father takes him back as a son, not just as a servant. And I want you to get this. Look at me. Look at me. This is exactly what God does for us. The Bible says that while you were sinners, Christ died for us. While you hated him, he died for you. While you hated him, he loved you. He does not just make us a slave. He makes us into a son or a daughter. He takes us back into the family. And so here's what happens. This son goes to the father and says, I am not worthy. And what does the father do? He says, no, I'll make you worthy. You're my son. And this is the exact thing that God does for us. Go to the next, actually two slides down now. Next slide. There you go, that one. When we acknowledge that we're unworthy, that's when he makes us worthy. So if this son comes back, if, he, if his attitude was like, yeah, I'm back, Dad. Um, you got any more money for me? Or puts his feet up on the couch like, what's up, Dad? How's it going? I mean, that would not be the proper attitude. The, the son goes back and says, I am not worthy to be called your son. And the father says, I'll, I'll make you worthy. And that's the exact thing that Jesus does for us. If you come to Jesus all arrogant and prideful, like, okay, Jesus, I heard that you wanted me on your team because I'm so great. I'm so wonderful. That's the wrong attitude to approach Jesus. But when you approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I am unworthy to be your servant, that's when Jesus says, you're right, but I'll make you worthy. I'll make you into a son. I'll make you into a daughter. I'll make you worthy. Jesus does that in our lives. 
another message for you from this passage is that some of you in the room, you think you've done way too much to return. You think you've done way too much to come back to Christ. And the message for you is come home. It's time to come home. It's time for you to acknowledge that you're in this pit, you're in this rut, and it's time to return home. It's time to come home. And so we have to wrestle with a really important question this morning. Why do people do this? Why do people have this urge to just go and, and make some really horrible decisions, pursue some really awful things? Why do people have this urge to live this way? Why do people say things like, I need to find myself, I need to follow my heart? Why do, we, why do they leave a good situation and pursue sin? Why does a father leave his family, leave his wife and his kids for another woman? Why does a guy leave a good job and get strung out on drugs? Why do people blow money on stupid, worthless things? What is it in us that causes this? Here's why. It's the sin of idolatry. When you and I replace the creator with the creation and worship the creation instead of the creator, this is called idolatry. We start to see things in the creation, and we start to make the creation itself ultimate. We start to seek happiness and joy and fulfillment in the creation and not the creator, and it leads to these kinds of decisions. And you end up in a place where you go, how in the world did I end up here? This was the dumbest thing I could have done. But this is what happens when we replace the creator with the creation. And we make the creation ultimate to us and not the creator. We look to the created things to find ultimate meaning, purpose, and happiness, something they were never meant to provide, and those things never satisfy. One guy said it this way. Next slide. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. There's no question that this world has a lot to offer. This world has lots of joys to offer, but they will never satisfy the human heart. And so when you and I seek fulfillment in the creation, not the creator, it always falls short. Some of you in the room right now, you're actually you're on the brink as we speak. You may not be leaving home physically, but you are leaving home spiritually as we speak. In your heart, here's what you believe. You believe that God's holding out on you. You believe that God is not a good God. He is holding out on you. He's, holding, he's withholding good things from you, and you are determined as ever to get those things and experience life. You see Christianity as slavery or as a straitjacket. You think God's trying to steal your joy. But at the heart of all of this is something called idolatry, and you are worshiping the creation and not the creator. Because God gave us creation to have joy. God gave us it, it as a blessing. Whenever you get them reversed, that's when this happens. So the question is, what do you do if this is you? What, what do you do? Do you just stop trying to have idols? Like, what do you actually do with this? Look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Next slide. Here's what it says. It says, since then... You've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So what you have to do is, here's the, here's the thing, guys. Listen, look at me. 
you've got to start to see Jesus as more beautiful, as more fulfilling than your idols. You've got to start to see Jesus for who he really is. You've got to start to see Jesus being the good, loving God that he is. You can't just say, okay, I'm just going to relinquish my idols and just try to stop doing things. No, you've got to see your idols in their proper context, and you've got to see Jesus for who he is. And Jesus has to become more fulfilling, more complete, more beautiful than the idols that you are worshiping right now in your life. That's what has to happen. And so that might look like you going home today and saying, getting on your knees before God and saying, God, help me to see you for who you are. Help me to see where I'm headed as this pit, as this rut. And you are a good father who wants to bless me. You're a good father who wants the best for me. Help me to see you as that because right now I don't see you as that. I don't see you that way. You see, how you view God, this is what sends someone over the cliff or someone who decides to stay in the fold. How you view God determines everything. So with that in mind, do questions 8, 9, and 10, and go ahead and pray at your tables when you're finished up.